The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Well, Trudy, that explains a lot. Now I know why when she forgets my name, she calls me number eight. <laughs> Not really. I've never heard Trudy call me number eight. It's a, it's a great place to be together today. Thank the Lord for good weather. Uh, we, we sit, stand, lie down on, on uh, a, pla- a piece of land that last night uh, we heard the story of how God provided this piece of land. And uh, I pondered last year as we were preparing for the case statement and the vision that this would have, how its, its proximity to the bird sanctuary, Fort White Alive, right next door. And... and um, we, we, uh, we talk about a sanctuary being a, a, a room where God's people gather to worship. And, and I mentioned it last night that uh, I've been reading more and thinking a lot about a theology of place. And uh, this fall, we're going to talk a lot about that because uh, unlike any other world religion and in, unlike any other world philosophy, Christianity has a theology of place that is that is incredible. It is, it is Jesus Christ. He's the place. He is the temple. He is the place of worship. And uh, when he sent his Holy Spirit into his people, we became the place of worship. We became, became the temple. And this land is a wonderful place. And right now it is sacred land because you're here and because Jesus Christ is in you and because he is being exalted in our midst. But when we leave in a, in a few hours, it'll just be land again. And so we assign an incredible significance to land because of what God has brought us together to be, first of all, and to do. Last night, um, we were here together, and we, we fanned out and prayed in the different sections of the land. Uh, and this building footprint, and, and uh, I think Kevin has mentioned it, that we will, this is the size of the footprint, but we will be sort of transposed over that way about a half a building length. And so we decided not to cut all that brush down right now for the sake of this service. But that's the footprint of the building, and uh, it's an incredible opportunity that God's put before us. And this weekend uh, launches our capital funds campaign this fall which is entitled, A New Season of Growing Together. And the, the new season of growing together is all about us. It's about the people of God and what He's growing in and, and through us. And as I've listened to testimonies, you've heard a little bit about the buildings that we've had over the years, but you've heard a lot more about life transformation, and that's what we are excited about. I mentioned last week, or last night, about uh, Abraham, how God had led Abraham into three critical stages of a different kind of faith. The first, when he left his homeland and went off to, to find the place that God would plan for him, it was a get-up-and-go faith. He had no idea where he was going. And I mentioned as well that he was called to wait. It's a slow-down-and-wait faith that God sometimes brings us into a season of waiting upon him. And then there's that third scenario in Hebrews 11 where it's described that Abraham was asked to offer up the most precious thing in his life, his only son Isaac, which is a picture of God 
the Father offering his son Jesus Christ. And, and that's a, a, a give over and surrender faith. And last night I mentioned that that is indeed the way that often God leads us as people to offer up ourselves in, in faith and in obedience and to either get up and go, slow down and wait, or offer up and surrender. What is the kind of faith that God's leading us into together? Let's pray together. Father, as we begin to open your word this morning, we thank you for the privilege of, of being here on this piece of land. Lord, uh, land has significance because of its being assigned a meaning. This morning we think of it being 9-11 and that land in New York that has significance because of an event. And this land might have significance because of what we assign to it one day as the place of, of meeting and gathering and planning and, and ministering to souls. But God, that's in your will and that's in your timing and our times are in your hands. And so, Father, we would ask that you would make it clear what is your leading and through your people that you would guide us, Father, into the next season of growing together. And if it includes this place as opposed to being at McDermott or at Grant or at Skirfield, then, Lord, have your way and don't let us Hold back anything of your kingdom coming and your will being done. Open up our hearts now, God, and help us to hear what you have to say this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. We uh, spent 2015 studying the life of David, and we have gone back and forth with the Old and New Testament. This past summer, we were in the Gospel of John. Now we're going back into the Old Testament, and we pick up into 1 Kings next week, and we will be studying the life of Solomon and the building of the temple, and it, it just happens that that's exactly when this building campaign is on, and it's going to be an interesting juxtaposition as we study what New Covenant Temple is all about and as we study what Solomon was all about. And so this morning as we begin, I, if you have a Bible and you want to open to uh, Acts chapter 13, this morning we're going to be almost eulogizing David as we say goodbye to David and review what some of the things of his life were all about. And as we turn to look at his son Solomon and what his reign will be all about. And so in Acts chapter 13, there's just two verses that I'd like to share with you. And you can remain seated as I read them. First of all, in Acts chapter 13, verse 22, it says, After removing Saul, he made David their king, and he testified concerning him, I have found David, son of Jesse, a man after my own heart. He will do everything I want him to do. For when David had served God's purposes in his own generation, he fell asleep, he was buried with his fathers, and his body decayed. That last verse in verse 36 of Acts 13. Why does Paul, who's preaching in Antioch in this passage, mention that David's body saw decay? It's because he's preaching on the resurrection. He's preaching on the fact that Jesus Christ did not see decay. He's alive. And uh, he was preaching to a group of people that needed to come to believe that. 
And here we are in a city where there are many people that do not believe that Jesus Christ is alive. I spoke of the resurrection a couple of weeks ago when we were concluding the Gospel of John. And I said that you could divide all of the people of Winnipeg into two groups. There are the group of people that really do not in their hearts believe that God, through Jesus Christ, is alive and that your life matters to him today. And there is a group of people that really do not believe that God is alive, that Jesus Christ is alive, and that he cares about our lives, that he loves us. And so Paul is preaching the resurrection, and in the process he describes David, who is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. Now David's life can be understood in three seasons. And I'd like to quickly have a a review of David's life right now and take a look at those seasons together with you. The first season of David's life is easy. We got very little information about it. It's from the age of birth to 17 years of age when David was uh, with his father Jesse and his other seven brothers. And and he was a shepherd boy, often out on the fields. And uh, we read about that in Samuel. Not too much to know about. But at the age of 17, an incredible thing happens to David. And the prophet Samuel comes along and God tells him that he is going to have, uh, Jesse's family is going to have the next king. And and after all the brothers of David pass by, uh, finally they go out into the fields and get the youngest. And he comes in to, to, to be crowned king by Samuel. And the famous words that are found in that scripture in Second Samuel or First Samuel is, do not consider his appearance or his height. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And we know from Second Samuel five four that David is not crowned or it is not uh, does not actually become king, crowned king, enthroned king until the age of thirty. So everything between the age of 17 and the age of 30 is found in the last half of of, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 16 to 31, ages 17 to 30. That's the second phase or season of David's life. Now, what happens in those 13 years? Well, that's, that's when he killed the giant Goliath. That's when he served in Saul's army. That's when he was tested because Saul became jealous and David had to flee into the desert and wilderness with his faithful army. And that's when he also fled into Philistine country for just over a year in a state of hard-heartedness and rebellion almost against God. Very dry years. In fact, in those, that year and three months in Philistine country, we know of none of the Psalms that came from David during that season of dryness and of walking away from God. This was a, t- a period of time in the second season of David's life was when he, he lost his innocence, when he, he became a man and he became a man of God, but it was through very difficult times and not always pretty, not always faithful. And, and then the final season of David's life begins at the age of 30 when he is finally given the throne and he quickly does a few things. He, he brings the capital city to Jerusalem. He brings the Ark of the Covenant and makes the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And he unites the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which had been divided up until that time. And so in that period of time, there is great prosperity. God gives him victory over all of his enemies surrounding him. In 2 Samuel 8, we read of a summary of all the accomplishments of David in that season of time at the beginning of that third season of his life as a young or middle-aged man. 
But then we read in the scriptures in 2 Samuel that he begins to stumble. He begins to take his ease. He begins to let down his guard. And in one instance, instead of going out to battle when all kings would go out to battle, he instead stays at home and he is lured into temptation as he witnesses one of his faithful men's wife bathing on a rooftop. He lusts after Bathsheba. He commands her to be brought to him. And then through a scheme of all kinds of deceit and lies, he has her husband killed. He becomes, within a few days, he becomes an adulterer, a liar, and a murderer. And for a whole year of David's life, in this incredible season of prosperity, David is in rebellion against God. And he is hard-hearted. And God is not speaking to him. Finally, God sends the prophet Nathan. And the prophet Nathan arrives and he tells a story to David. And and David identifies the, the one in the story and he realizes that it's him that he's talking about. And he confesses his sin and repents. And so in this period of time, now I want you to I want you to know David's sin with Bathsheba had started 20 years earlier. When he had opened the door of his palace to have many concubines and many wives, something that was never God's intention. Sin is a social disease. And so it not only affected his life, but it affected the lives of those in his family and his kingdom. And so we see in this same season of life that within a few years, his sin has affected his children. And we see that uh, the sin of David has affected his son Amnon, who rapes his half-sister Tamar. And then in revenge, out of this indignity, another son, Absalom, kills his older brother Amnon. And so within just a few months, David's sin has become this incredible blight on his family and on his kingdom. It is in this season of David's life that we see the man of God, the man after God's own heart, unraveling. We see this gloomy depression settle upon David like we had never seen before in his biography. For a season, instead of turning his face upward to be a man after God's own heart, he turns his face towards the wall. He is an uninvolved father and husband and king. He is a depressed man. He is not parenting. He is not leading his wife and family. He is not leading his kingdom. He is passive. He does nothing to reconcile his son who has raped his daughter, except get angry. He does nothing to reconcile the other son who has become a murderer, except send him away. And as contradictory as it may sound, doing nothing is, is actually doing something. Doing nothing is always doing something. Don't ever kid yourselves in life. Doing nothing is always doing something. What was David doing? David was embittering his children against him in this season of life when his face was turned to the wall instead of towards the Lord and his family. And in this season of doing nothing, we see his children become embittered. We, become, we see Absalom become a, a free-riding rebel in the kingdom. 
We see him go unchecked to do wherever and whatever and however he pleases. And while David mopes to himself in the palace, Absalom is forming a conspiracy against him. And that's what happens. Absalom slowly gains such a following over three to four years that he finally raises an army large enough to come to to Jerusalem. And David the king, the rightful king, again does nothing except flee from his rightful throne and leaves Jerusalem. And we see that the standoff finally occurs when the forces of David in the wilderness and the forces of Absalom meet up, and Joab, the commander of David's army, kills Absalom. What does David do? He mourns. He finally returns to Jerusalem to reclaim his throne, and yet for the rest of David's days, he experiences division in the kingdom, conflict within his family, conflict within the regiment of his army, conflict with the enemies outside of Jerusalem. And when David is in this season of time, he makes also a huge blunder. Whereas the sin with Bathsheba was a sin of, of, of lust and a sin we call in the Bible the a sin of the flesh, the sin of ca- taking a military census was a sin of the spirit. You, be, you see, because it rose out of not a lust of the flesh, but it rose out of the pride that was in David's heart and the insecurity and the lack of trusting in God. You see, it was never the counting of able-bodied military men that won the victories for David in the past. And so now in this season of time, why is it so necessary that they take nine months to sweep the kingdom and count all of the able-bodied men? You see, this was an act of unfaithfulness on the part of David. And incredibly, God judges David severely for this act of unbelief and pride. What happens is that a plague begins to strike Israel and people are dying. And as David sees it happening, he realizes that it is because of his sin and he runs before God and God tells him through the prophet Gad that he is simply to go and build an altar, sacrifice on it, and the plague will stop. Well, God directs him to the place of a Jebusite and he owns a threshing floor. He buys the threshing floor, though Arauna, the Jebusite, is offering to give it to him free of charge. And David says, I will not offer to God anything that costs me nothing. And so he takes and he, he pays for the threshing floor. He builds the altar on the threshing floor. He gets the animals and sacrifices to the Lord his God on that place. And the plague stops. And that is the last verse of Second Samuel. That's the last picture we saw of David when we ended it in 2015. The last verse of 2 Samuel says, And then the Lord answered prayer in behalf of the land. The plague on Israel was stopped. That's the last scene of David. That's the last scene. Here we see then at the end of 2 Samuel, an old king, a tired king, a depressed king, a passive king with no successor, no one named to take the throne. He's turned inward, he's uninvolved, and he is reaping the whirlwind of his own disobedience. He is a negligent husband and father and king who bears no resemblance to the young man that we read of earlier in the great exploits of faith as he led thousands in Israel to accomplish the will of God in that generation for his kingdom. 
But I want to tell you, God is not finished with David. And God carries on the story in 1 Kings. As we begin next week, we'll be looking at specifically. And God enables, by His grace, for David to finish well. There is nothing, I'm telling you, there's nothing in the narrative so far. There's nothing in the narrative that would suggest to us that David the king is going to finish his life well. But by the grace of God, David finishes his life well. What fascinates me is that years, generations later, when Paul is preaching in Antioch, he can still call David a man after God's own heart who led with integrity. It amazes me that long after all of the blunders and the blight on David's testimony and and track record, he is still called a man after God's own heart. He says, he will do everything I want him to. And after fulfilling God's purpose in his own generation, he fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and his body saw decay. I want to just ask you, what a statement that is. He fulfilled God's purpose in his own generation. After we've read about this man whose life and his mistakes have been laid bare, scrutinized, warts and all, how did David serve God's purposes? I want to just say one thing about that, that question, and that is that incredibly, the way that, that David fulfilled God's purposes was through his weakness and his blunders that God used David more than any other king to grow his kingdom, but he didn't do it the way David expected it. He did it out of the two greatest sins that David ever committed. Out of his sin with Bathsheba, we see the successor to his throne, his son Solomon, rise up. And out of his sin of taking a military census, we see him purchase the very land, this threshing floor in Jerusalem, that would become the place where Solomon will build the temple. Incredible. The two blunders of David's life are used by God to leave the most lasting legacy of what David was all about. What an incredible lesson this is. I mentioned last night, that we want to talk a lot about a theology of place. We want to be clear about what this land represents and what it does not represent. We believe in Jesus Christ, that he has become everything we need. He is the temple. He is the center of our faith. In fact, even as we've just finished John's gospel, we were reminded that at the very beginning, the way John outlines his gospel, he says, the word was made flesh and he tabernacled. He made his dwelling. He pitched his tent. The location, the place was him. He was among us. And we have beheld his glory. Glory comes from temples. We beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only. And in, that, in John chapter 2, when Jesus is near the temple. And he, he actually, John, John actually puts the cleansing of the temple at the beginning because he's trying to make a statement when Jesus walks into the temple and he sees the money changers and he, he throws over the tables and he's making the statement, this is not the way it's going to be. I'm going to be the temple. And remember what happened in that scripture in John 2? He said, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. 
and someone says, it took 46 years to build this temple. How are you going to do it in three days? And John puts in parenthesis, by this he meant his body, whom he would give for sinners. It, it, it was all about Jesus' body. That's the temple. And so now that the Holy Spirit has come and we are the body of Christ, we, the people, are the temple of the living God. Amen? That's the, that's the promise. That's the, that's the conclusion of theology of place. There are three sacred mountains in Jerusalem. There is the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, of course, where Jesus wept drops of blood and prayed and was arrested. There is Mount Zion, of course, where today stands the Muslim Dome of the Rock. And then, of course, there is Mount Moriah right beside it. And Mount Moriah is where Solomon built his temple. And it stood for over 400 years until Nebuchadnezzar destroyed it in 586. And it says in the Scriptures that Solomon built the temple right over that threshing floor that David had purchased. I find it so interesting that of all the legacy of faith that David leaves, his two sins are the things that impact future generations the most. I find it interesting that in all of Scripture that we read about David after his death, we don't see any of the authors of Scripture rehearsing his blunders, talking about his mistakes, defining his sins, talking about the bad days. We only read about the good days. For example, in Psalm 78, when another psalmist is talking about King David, here's what he says. He says, He chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to the shepherd of his people, Jacob of Israel, in his inheritance. And David shepherded them with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. David is being esteemed here in this eulogizing that takes place in Psalm 78. And that is what a eulogy does. It, it speaks well of, it, it forgets the bad. It speaks well of the person that is deceased. And here is an example where David is eulogized. He's known as a faithful shepherd, a skilled poet, an accomplished musician, a, a brave warrior, a mighty king, a man of faith, a man after God's own heart. And at the end of his life, by the grace of God, he even appoints the proper successor, his son Solomon, who chooses as a wise successor to continue the throne. And on the surface, like I said, there's no explanation why or how he could finish well, and yet... By the grace of God, he does. If you have a Bible and you want to turn to it, I will read to you a verse from 1 Chronicles chapter 28. And we will talk briefly next week about this very thing. But the final words of David to Solomon are incredible words. And we need to take a lesson from them. In, in 1 Chronicles chapter 28, verse 9, this is what David says to his son. Solomon. David is just going to be around a, a month or two more before he dies, our guess is. And these are some of the last words, David, to Solomon. He says, you, my son Solomon, know or acknowledge, but the older translations say know. It's the word know. Know the God of your father and serve him with wholehearted devotion and a willing mind. Now, I want you to know that if you've read through much of the Old Testament, whenever someone later in, in redemptive history is talking back about something earlier in redemptive history about God, what do they normally say? 
Know the God of who? Know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Over and over again. That's, that's what it's all about, is, is follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But what does this passage say? When David is sitting with his son Solomon, what does he say? He says, know the God of your father. I think that is incredible. I think that is huge. I think that what David was saying here was, know my God. Know the God that I have followed with all my heart. Yes, I've made many blunders, but I have tried to live a Godward life. David is not just passing on a kingdom. David is not just saying, know the kingdom that I have for you. Know, know the boundaries of Jerusalem. Know the palace I built. Know the boundaries of all of Judea and Israel. Know my religion that I'm passing. Remember my psalms and the poems that I've written. Know the law of Moses. He's not saying these things. He's not saying, know the throne that I'm passing on to you and the authority it carries. Know, know the people that, that God has put under your care. He's not saying that. He's not saying, know the treasury that has come from all the battles we've fought with our enemies, all the gold, silver, and costly stone. Know every nickel and dime and crown in there. He doesn't say that. He's not concerned about knowing the temple that has been given in plans to David by God himself. He doesn't say anything about all these things. What does he say? What is the true legacy of faith that David is passing on? He says, know the God of your father. Know my God. That is huge. Know my God. That's the biggest, most important, and sacred legacy that he could have passed on found a book here by Elizabeth Elliot named God's Guidance. I want to read to you a little story. Elizabeth Elliot, as you know, was a missionary in Ecuador. And she says, two young Americans with high adventure in their hearts arrived in the city of Quito, Ecuador, on their way to see the great Amazon rainforest east of the Andes. They were going on a six-week trek and had planned to write a book about their experiences. She puts in brackets, I guess six weeks ought to be enough to write a book. They had been to an army surplus store before they left home, bought everything that the salesman told them they would need, things like waterproof hammocks and mosquito nets and canvas water bags and lanterns and floating flashlights and safari t-shirts and fish hooks and bait and all the other stuff. And she said, what more could they want? There, there it was. It occurred, it occurred to them that when they reached Quito, one thing they lacked, the language. And when they learned that there was a jungle missionary living in Quito, Ecuador, they came to my door and knocked on it. There would be Indians where they were going, wouldn't there, they asked. Well, maybe, but that would depend on where you're going. That, too, would depend Ah, Quichuas, they said? No, it depends on where you're going. There were seven or eight tribes on that side of the Andes, and their, vague, their map was rather vague as to the route they would take. 
But um, finally, oh, well, just give us a few phrases, they said to her. Indian languages are pretty much all the same, aren't they? Well, they described their equipment with great pride, and I could see that it was not going to be of much use. I wanted to tell them that what they ought to have was a guide, but they asked only for help on language and nothing on equipment, and so that was the advice they got. There they went, full of confidence, out the door, and perhaps they found their way all right, perhaps they survived, perhaps they didn't, perhaps they wrote their book, I never heard of them again. Sometimes we come to God as the two adventurers that came to me, sometimes confident, and we think well-informed and well-equipped, but it has not occurred to us that with all of our accumulation of stuff, something is missing. There's just one thing we will have to ask God for, and we hope he will not find it necessary to sort through the other things that we've accumulated. There's nothing there that we're, we're willing to do without. Besides, we know what we need. A yes or a no answer from God is all we look for. That's all we need. Or perhaps a road sign. Something quick and easy and to the point is what we'd like. But what we really ought to have is the guide himself. Maps, road signs, these are useful phrases to have in the language that you, you need. But infinitely better is someone who has been there before and knows the way. Well, the same is true for us, isn't it? David lived a Godward life. The legacy of David's life, even in the midst of all his screw-ups, was forged out of a governing principle that was vertical, Godward. He sought the Lord even when he had failed. He sought the Lord. He learned even when he blew it that God was the one he could run toward, not away from. And so his eulogy remembers the true David, a man after God's own heart, who did not allow his failures and life's detours and sins and circumstances to define him. He lived a Godward life. He had served God's purpose in his own generation. He died and is remembered not for the events of his life, but for the essence of his life. Not for the events that even brought him shame but for the essence of his life. And I want to tell you, you and I will be remembered in the same way. Though we have all had our regrets and failures and sins that we are ashamed of, they do not need to define us, neither in this life nor in how we will be remembered by those that matter. The essence of a life lingers on in eulogy. The events will be forgotten. And this is true for us individually and it will be true for us as the people of God called White Ridge Baptist Church. And so in the future, the events of ministry will eventually be forgotten. Many things will be forgotten in future generations. The programs that we run, the committees that we have, the ministries, the buildings. It is not these that we pass on to the next generation. It is not, we do not write checks for those things alone, but for the kingdom that will come. For the essence of ministry, a life that is Godward, a church that is Godward. It is not these things that inspire a new season of growing together. We do not tell our next generation of children, youth, and young adults, know our programs, know our constitution, know our governance model, know our ministries, know our facilities. We don't say that. We say, know our God. 
we say, no, God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't even say to them, no, our vision, because the next generation might have a vision that does not look like the vision that we have. But when they walk with God, God will lead them into the vision for their generation. And so I say to you as I conclude, along with David, know our God, the God of our Father. Know the God that has served for 56 years, this church. Know Jesus Christ. Know the one for whom to know is eternal life itself. Know the one that died for our sins and rose again. Know the one that is, is the one that yet has people in the city of Winnipeg that are yet to claim Jesus Christ as Lord. Know the one that sits right now at the Father's right hand and is interceding for us. Know the lover of your soul that when you mess up, he runs toward you, not away from you. Know the one who is gathering a people from every city, from every place on this globe, from every language and nation under heaven. Know the one who is supreme over all powers and kingdoms and authorities. Know the one who is the returning triumphant king, coming soon to gather his church. Know the one who sees every effort that we make, every investment we have in our lives, in our money, in our time. Know the one who sees it all and will one day say to us, well done good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of my Father. Let us pray. Lord, may we be found faithful, O God. May we be found faithful to the very end of our lives. And whether that be soon or many decades away, may we be found faithful to fulfill the purpose that you have for us in this generation, even as David, in all of his mess-ups, lived a Godward life and was able to be found faithful. And so that the eulogy reads, he was a man after God's own heart. May we be the people after your heart. May we live Godward lives. And together, as we sanctuary on this earth and show to this community around us what Jesus Christ is all about, and the glory of his presence. May we impact this world, and Lord, may you lead us to do the things that you alone can lead us to do. We pray in your precious name. Amen.